This is TREP Wire Week in Review for week ending July 9th. I'm Martha Kocher with TREP, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS, commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Joe McBride, Head of Siri Finance. And joining us today is our own Darren King, Head of CMBS. This week, air travel leading up to the holiday reached pre-pandemic levels for the first time in over a year. In economic news, first-time jobless claims rose unexpectedly last week on the heels of a strong June jobs report. Services sector activity fell more than expected, and consumer credit demand rose significantly in April. Manis, despite a recovering economy and fast inflation, the 10-year Treasury yield continues to decline. What's going on? Well, I think what we're seeing is, you know, narratives come and narratives go, right? And the narrative drives the market. And in the spring, the narrative was, we're going to see a really powerful rebound. And we were among those, especially, you know, I, I believe this in particular, that we would see a powerful rebound over the summer. Uh, you know, some of the quotes that people were saying, you know, on CNBC and other places were, every day is going to be Mardi Gras, every day is New Year's Eve. And when that's the expectation, it's not enough to see crazy teens, you know, dancing on the beach at Daytona Beach with Snoop Dogg, right? You're expecting to see that at the tent revivals and the 55 and over communities also, right? You're thinking, if I'm not seeing body shots being taken everywhere, every night in every city, then the recovery is not what we had been expected. And I think that that's kind of true. You know, I'm kind of joking about this. Nobody expects to see body shots taking place at a revival tent. But, you know, we, there's no images out there of, you know, 10,000 people at uh, a big rock concert with camping and mingling and, and so forth. So I think that based on the really lofty expectations that people had in, you know, April and May, I think this recovery seems muted. Uh, I don't think it's that big a surprise looking back. I know this will seem like Monday morning quarterbacking compared to what I said three months ago. But when you consider the headlines we've seen over the last month, right, um, the COVID mutations, um, new mask mandates in California this week, the limiting of spectators at the Olympics in Japan, could you blame anybody who said, you know what, let's not do that Hawaii vacation this year. Let's not do Orlando. Let's continue with what we did last summer. Let's do the Jersey Shore uh, or the mountains or, or some other beach resort where you can get to. And even if it, you know, is locked down again or it, it doesn't become uh, as open as we thought it might be, at least we're having some kind of vacation. And at this point, the summer is half over and, and we're not seeing that just rabid, you know, back to normal vision or, or, or images that we thought we might see. And I think that that's probably what's responsible for some of this uh, drop in the 10-year Treasury this week. Yeah, well, we did have the Fed minutes come out too, and they were, they were hemming and hawing a little bit uh, on some elements, including kind of resi mortgage-backed securities purchases and stuff like that. But the overall tone was we're not raising rates for the foreseeable future. So I think that was, you know, the market took some comfort in that side of things. I mean, I think that we're, we're seeing an orderly recovery, it seems like. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of that worry about inflation that we were talking about a month or two ago. And there seems to be a lot less talk about that uh, right now. I think that the one area that's, you know, just increasingly obvious in terms of inflation is housing prices. And a lot of that is supply driven more than anything. So who knows what the heck the market thinks anyway, right? 
tomorrow the, the futures are going to be way up to the, the, the next day, the futures are going to be way down. So uh, in the end, I think it's all about interest rates in the long run. And as long as the Fed remains accommodative, that's really all that matters. And everything else is kind of window dressing. I think with that, you got to think globally as well, right? We're talking about a steadily improving, if not, as Matt has mentioned, not maybe like a this amazing boom that we were expecting in the U.S., but compare that globally to uh, what Matt just mentioned with Tokyo is in a state of emergency and will be in one for the Olympics. Uh, I've been watching a lot of Euro 2020, even though it's 2021, on TV, don't tell my boss, and a lot of those stadiums in Europe are still empty. So where are you going to go with your money? There's a flush of cash, not just with American investors and you know money managers, insurance companies, but and banks, but globally, you know, European uh, and Asian, you know, coffers are full of cash. And what other country are you going to put that that capital to work in? You're, you're going to come to the U.S. You know, 125, 130, 10-year is cheap relative to just about every other G7, G20 country out there. You know, we're st- we've got the best economy. You know, the dollar is still the fiat currency, and where else are you going? You know, we always look for the big tell in terms of, you know, what this recovery looks like. And it's a little early right now because we're getting July remittance data right now, and that won't have first half hotel data in it yet for occupancy and NOI and things like that. But as that data starts to come in in August and September, I think that will be a really meaningful set of data for us to look at and see just how much occupancy has ticked up, how much recovery there has been. And, and my gut right now says that people are hedging. They're not doing that big vacation. They're doing that drive to type thing. And certain places will do well, the, the kind of places that cater to that. But some of the travel destinations might uh, surprise to the downside. Darren, CMBS issuance activities on the upswing for this year, and some are predicting that we could set a new record for the full year. What are the trends that we're seeing so far? Uh, so to steal Manis's phrase, we've got a lot of green shoots within the private label CMBS market, a couple of patches of crabgrass. I think I'm the first one to use it this week. Happy to be on the board with the, uh, with the catchphrase. Um, so what we've seen, if you kind of break the CMBS market down into its three pieces of private label, you've got uh, conduit deals, single asset, single borrower, and series CLOs. Um, so those three combined for the first half were a little over $67 billion in issuance. You look back versus 2020, which obviously you put an asterisk next to that, we were $64 billion for the year in 2020. Kind of go back pre-pandemic, 2019 full year numbers were $115 billion, 2018 and 2017 uh, in the low 90s uh, billion. So we're really on a great pace thus far for recovery and issuance. And, and again, if we can keep this up, we'll do far better than, than the, that 2019 number of 115 billion. The breakdown of it, I think, is even more interesting. Um, you look at you know, what's done well, what hasn't. Again, we'll go with the, the green shoots, the series CLO market issuance for the first half is just under 21 billion. Um, that compares to a, an annual record uh, set back in 2019 of 19 and a half billion. So we're six months in and have already surpassed the full year record for, for issuance. And the second quarter actually surpassed the first quarter in terms of volume. So we're actually on the upswing in terms of momentum there. Uh, whether or not that continues in that manner for the rest of the year, who knows, um, but still we're seeing that the series seal of sector become more robust than, than I think anyone even could have imagined it, it would have gotten. Same thing kind of in the, in the SASB sector, 
um, just under 32 billion of issuance for the first half. Compare that to a total year of 27 billion for 2020, again, with an asterisk. Um, go back to 2019, 18, and 17, you're looking at um, kind of 46 billion for 2019 and then 37-ish billion for 2017 and 2018. So well on our way uh, to surpassing you know, those numbers. Um, and I think the interesting thing in the SASB market uh, beyond just the headline numbers is the diversity of what we're seeing get done in that market. Um, we're seeing hotel deals, uh, extended say America just got done $4.7 billion in a single transaction. Um, New York City office, which people have concerns about one vendor, but was a $3 billion transaction that the market happily took. Several other deals in the $2 billion range, we're seeing industrial, um, other office, and even um, a handful of regional malls have gotten securitized in the single asset space refinances from kind of the 2011, 2012 vintage um, that, you know, is finding so much distress uh, to date. Um, so we really have a, a widespread and, and sort of broad-based recovery in the single asset market. The one crabgrass piece of this is the conduit space, which um, for the first half of the year is uh, just under $15 billion of issuance. Compare that to full year 2020 was 28 billion go back again to 2019, 18, and 17, when we averaged about 45 billion. So we're way off the pace, you know, in terms of the conduit market. Um, and, and frankly, not even really recovering much from where 2020 stood. So that's the place where um, certainly we're seeing um, more difficulty. Would you call this uptick in CRE, CLO issuance transitory? And once we get back to kind of a normally functioning economy, you know, we're back to kind of the, the typical ratio we've been seeing in the past, or is this the new normal? Is this the way borrowers are going to attack financing needs in the long term? Uh, so I think there's two pieces to unpack in that. I think series CLOs will stay elevated um, just based on a, what's being financed in that asset class. So by its nature, it's more transitional type assets. So things that aren't fully stabilized, aren't 95% occupancy yet. It's things that maybe 60 to 70% occupancy, you wanna get that, um, you know, a sponsor wants to, you know, take it from 60 to 70 up to 90 and then maybe go out and get some permanent financing. The other thing with the market, with the series CLO market is while you think of it as a transitional, and I think we talked about this a few months back on the, on the podcast, more than half of that collateral is multifamily. And based on everything we've seen in the housing market, whether it be, you know, single family, single family rental or multifamily, there's just a complete shortage of housing. Um, you know, people just need more places to live than exist. So I wouldn't expect that to diminish at all. And that's not collateral that uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are gonna write. This is gonna be in the series CLO market in the debt fund space. And then when it stabilizes, that's when Fannie, Freddie and you know, Ginny Mae kind of step in and take on the permanent financing. So I think the series CLO market is, is here to stay. Um, the other aspect of it, just from the capital markets perspective is it's become a great source of financing from a cost perspective as well. The series CLOs themselves at issuance are actually financing better than the balance sheet warehouse lines that the banks will provide to warehouse the collateral. So you've actually got an advantage by coming to the capital markets um, over just using a bank warehouse line. So those debt funds who have not necessarily been involved in the series CLO space are looking at it even harder now um, because it's now got, you know, an asset and a liability benefit to it. So the wind has been at the back of the CMBS and CRE CLO issuance market for quite a while, right? Low interest rates, low volatility, spreads have stayed really range bound for a considerable period of time. 
you know, in your mind, is there anything out there that could stop this momentum for the rest of 2021 that could lead to a pullback from lenders or a, a tapping of the brakes? You know, the only thing, and I think this is the comment that you'll hear in any kind of, you know, what's the pullback is, is some kind of sharp turn in the pandemic back toward the negative, where all of a sudden there's a lot more cases, um, but nothing from a financial markets perspective, I think derails it. If anything, um, I think you'll start to see, and hopefully, I think the market hopes to see the conduit space come back more um, and, and, and certainly pick up its momentum as what used to be, you know, the leading sector in, in CMBS and now is, is the trailing one. Because what I think you'll see is more comfort around, um, you know, retail loans where the tenants are back in and paying and operating and, you know, people are showing up. Much more comfort in the hotel space, which is, you know, where volumes are down, I think almost, you know, 80 to 90% in terms of the actual dollar figure done in the last 12 months versus pre-pandemic. I think that'll come back as you get more stabilized and more time to underwrite those cash flows. The example I take in hotel is things may be booming right now. If you're if you're going to come for a loan, are you going to is somebody going to underwrite just the last two months of your the rate you're charging and, and the occupancy? No, they're going to want more time than that. If you go back any further than that, now you're into the pandemic. And so what what cash flows are you underwriting? Are you going to go pre-pandemic and just assume 2019 will come back? So there's a lot of uncertainty around how you underwrite that that collateral and that'll go away as we just get more time under our belt to understand what, what stabilized hotels look like. So I figured by the fourth quarter, quite honestly, we've got more time to see what the recovery looks like and more seasonality flowing through. You'll start to see more and more hotel lending uh, show up. You'll also start to see, I think, office improve as well um, as more companies come back in and we figure out what some of these lease roles look like and, and how to manage that from an underwriting perspective. You talked about the SASB volume Darren, you know, really picking up. And that was a, a trend even before the pandemic, but now it's it's uh, even more obvious. But a mall loan getting done in SASB or a, a hotel type loan at this point, like talk a little bit about why that's happening, even despite all the, you know, inherent risks that people are seeing in that those parts of the market. That's a great question um, when it comes to, certainly when it comes to the mall space. Um, you know, I think what the market has done well, and, and what I'll actually say is sort of the green shoot, despite how bad the conduit market is doing from a volume perspective, is that the lending has been responsible and the investing has been responsible. And that's probably why the volumes are down is because you're not willing to write the, the same amount of retail loans and hotel loans. You're being much more careful about how you underwrite the collateral and which loans you pick and choose. Um, so when it comes to the, the retail space or even and as well as the hotel space and the FASB market, you can get your arms around that easier. And that's always been one of the things investors has, have liked about the single asset, single borrower market is I've got one sponsor, I've got a common or one asset. If it's, a, if it's a single sponsor, it's usually one asset type. I can get my arms around it. Or if it's in the case of a true single asset deal, it's one building. I can underwrite it from top to bottom. The, the level of information provided to the market, even to the public investors, is deeper than what you get in the conduit market. And all these things just lend themselves to a, a greater comfort level. If I can see, I think one of the great things about the, the mall loans that have been done in 2021 is the issuers are providing full rent rolls, you know, down to little kiosks that operate and you know, sell you know, beaded necklaces. You know what every single tenant is when that deal was issued. That, gives, that affords you a level of comfort that you know, this market has never had before, that when these loans were you know, done in 2011 and 2012, you knew the top five tenants. 
maybe the top 10. Um, now you've got everybody. And so if you can understand that and, and as an investor, re underwrite that rent roll, you can gain some more confidence in the investment you're making. Don't discount the personalized coffee mugs or the puka shell necklaces that you can get at those kiosks or the 10 minute massage for $45. <laughs> he has no words for that. <laughs> Moving on. In retail, visits to indoor malls in June rose 14% month over month, which is good news. And traffic is down only 8% from pre-pandemic levels, which is clearly a green shoot, which leads us into some green shoot stories. Manus will kick off with one in New Jersey. Well, I had a couple of things uh, even before our green shoots. I thought it was interesting that I saw an advertisement on television this week for the water park within the Dream Mall off the New Jersey Turnpike, the snake-bitten mall that has been through eight or 10 iterations. Uh, I guess now it's open and people can go there and, and uh, get on their tubes and you know, put it on their trunks and you know, go on this indoor water park, which was, I think, a, a milestone for that ill-fated asset. Um, turning to some uh, things that touch the CMBS and CRE markets uh, elsewhere, uh, also in New Jersey, or I should say it's in New Jersey and in California, the organization Pinstripes Inc. is expanding into two Westfield malls. One is the Garden State Plaza and one is the Topanga Mall, Garden State Plaza in New Jersey, Topanga in California. Pinstripes is a developer of dining and entertainment destinations. Uh, I think they're taking more than 100,000 square feet in the Garden State Plaza location that backs a $525 million CMBS loan, which is split between a SASB deal and a $150 million slice, which is part of a 2013 conduit deal. You know, why this story matters to me and, and to us is that, you know, that kind of experiential tenant has been the subject of a lot of scrutiny over the last year, right? Do you want to have that uh, Dave and Buster's tenant, the restaurant guy, you know, back to the dream uh, mall, you know, the water slide park, what do you want to have as a tenant? What's going to attract people and what's not? And experiential has been kind of frowned upon to some degree over the last year. And here you have Westfield signing a couple big deals with pinstripes to go exactly in that direction, which I think is a great sign. Long live bocce ball and bowling. Yeah, I was looking at these guys' website. It looks like an amazing place. It's got pictures of like ribs slathered in barbecue sauce and then the bocce ball cord. And the only thing is, you know, it's always a little weird when you're bowling, you know, and then you get the grease on your hands from the bowling alley. And then you go to grab like a buffalo wing and then it's a mixture of the grease and the wing sauce and messes up your curve. You not use napkins. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I oh. mean, you need a lot of napkins, a lot of wet, wet naps. But it's like, it's like uh, advice one of my uncles gave me years ago, you know, never take a date for ribs or spaghetti on a, on a first date. Actually, nothing good could come out of that. Actually, second ever date with my, with my wife was at Sherwood's in Larchmont. If anyone's in, if anyone knows uh, good ribs in Westchester County, and that was a, that was a sign, you know, we were both willing to eat some ribs and have some fun. But anyway, these, this pinstripes thing is, is, you know, it's the classic story 
of, hey, we need experiential. We need things that draw people in that they can't buy online. But how much can bowling and bocce ball really do for you? I guess I guess they have concerts and other things as well. But all of these things, I guess, is, is part of the trend right now. Right. Westfield is you know, part of Unibel Redemco, and they've already announced they're selling um, all their malls in the coming years. They need tenants and rent, however it yep. comes. Lease uh, term, baby. <laughs> right. We did see a couple of malls in that portfolio over the last year where Westfield just threw in the towel, where they said, we're going to go deed and loo with these things, and, and that's it. We're not even going to try to sell them. So, um, But it is interesting, like you said, Darren, that you know they're trying to beef up the window dressing, if you will, right, as they try to get rid of these, these assets. Well, what I'd be curious about, and this may be too far down the rabbit hole, is um, how they structured these leases. Did they front load all of the TIs and everything, all the free rent? Let's, I'll give you everything right now, all these freebies, but pay me a higher sticker rent. So when I go and try and sell these malls in a couple of years, hopefully the buyer gives me credit for that. And the multiple and the cap rate for that is worth more than the money you put in up front. I think Darren It's like wanted- the three-month concession at the apartment that you're still paying 3000 bucks a month for, but you got three free months. I think uh, Darren has a desire to be an investigative reporter somewhere down the line. I think uh, trying to figure out, you know, what's really happening behind the scenes is part of his DNA. He's a sleuth. <laughs> the next one we have for us is, this has to do with the Destiny Mall in upstate New York. This backs a big SASB deal. It's interesting because the mall had lost a lot of tenants over the last couple of years. There's $430 million in debt on the mall. The borrower is really fighting to keep it and worked out a modification, which included an extension, which pushed the maturity date out a couple of years. Good for them for fighting for it. Uh, but the good news this week at that mall was that uh, the borrower had nabbed Hobby Lobby as a tenant. So we've reported from time to time on this property of the loss of, of anchors, you know, this is a good sign of them adding a, a sizable tenant to the rent roll. Uh, that story came via WIBX 9.50 a.m. in upstate New York. Two other stories that we're watching. One is we saw a Pennsylvania shopping center trade for $90 million. This came from Globe Street. Cedar Realty Trust sold the 430-square-foot Camp Hill shopping center for 90 million, the property is 96% occupied. It is grocery anchored, there's a giant food there which explains some of its uh, appeal to the buyers. But it also has a lot of tenants in there that were kind of middling in terms of uh, desirability. It has a Boscovs department store, Staples, Five Below, Barnes and Noble and LA Fitness. So you're talking about five other tenants that, I don't know, are kind of not growing markets, right? Office supplies, department stores, et cetera. Yet, this got a $90 million price tag, which I think is terrific. The interesting thing for me was that this property was valued at $86 million, kind of at the peak of the market in 2007. So it is a, a property that even with a kind of 50-50 rent roll has managed to see some price appreciation over the last 14 years, which I think is, is quite interesting. And it's a sign of you know, uh, of strength for the retail market in an otherwise soft year. I'll take the other side of that coin, which is that essentially flatline value growth from 2006 to now. It's good probably for a retail center like this, who is just 
trying to hang on. But if it was any other asset class, we would be saying that was a big loss. Well, that might be the case, but I'll, I'll take the other side of the other side, which is if you went across the country and you looked at every mall that had a Boscovs in it and you took their valuation in 2007 and today, I would say that your valuation decline would average more than 25%. And a Barnes and Noble. And a Barnes and Noble and a Staples. You know, that's, that's a recipe for, you know, price devaluation. Thank God for that giant food. One more retail headline that caught my eye again. It's, it's the other side of the, you know, the bookend to my dream mall water slide park opening. And that is, I saw a headline today. There was a python that escaped in a Louisiana mall in Baton Rouge. And it still hasn't been recovered, but the mall remains open. What do you mean escaped? Does that mean there was a store inside selling a python and it escaped? It's like or a petting zoo. A python infiltrated the mall. <laughs> no, it's like a, it was like a, in the blue zoo inside the mall. <laughs> uh, according to the spokeswoman, the snake is named Kara. It's a yellow Burmese python and is not toxic. It's considered <laughs> a safe animal. It's often used to interact with guests in the snake education area. Move yeah, on. I wouldn't be there. <laughs> I think we have a couple more stories. One I think would be a green shoot and one is definitely a crabgrass. And that is that Bloomingdale's has started a interesting concept called Bloomies, which anybody who goes to Bloomingdale's normally calls Bloomingdale's Bloomies, but now it's, it's actually their official name for their new location in Fairfax, Virginia. It's a smaller footprint, 22,000 square feet. It's high on experience. We've talked about experience throughout this podcast. So they've got fashion, a colada shop, a restaurant. They've got coffee, cocktails, stylists. You can get alterations. So it sounds like uh, it's an interesting concept as they try to reinvigorate Bloomingdale's as a new, new idea. There have been many subjects upon which I have opined that I was very unqualified to opine on, on this podcast, just an FYI for all you listeners out there. This may be the most unqualified subject for me. I don't think, I don't know if I've ever been into a Bloomingdale's. Oh, wow. But maybe yeah. they're trying to be that, can they be the Apple store of uh, fashion retail? Like, I that's, think that's kind the, of what it sounds like to me. You know, I, I think the missing link on department stores is they need to marry experiential with the department store experience. And what do I mean by that? I mean that if you go to the department store with your family and everybody's doing their thing and you just don't want to be there, they should have an area in the betting department where a guy like me can go in and, you know, enter a pod and take a nap for the 90 minutes that your family is there shopping for back to school clothing or, you know, new furniture or whatever else is out there an appliance, God forbid. The problem is that the experiential element of most department stores in the last five years has been walking around a massive, empty, mostly, you know, unkempt store. And if you needed help, you would have to do one of those like, hello, 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 to get somebody and they wouldn't be able to help you. Right. It reminds me of Models in the old days. Remember Models in the old oh, days? Yeah. You'd have to be like elbowing people out of the way and like, you know, pulling shoes off of the ground and seeing if they're your size. I mean, that's 
that's what it's like to go to a Macy's nowadays. Nothing's on the rack. Everything's on the ground. It's just no good. Yeah, there's a 50-50 chance that if you take home a pair of shoes off the rack, you're going to get two different sizes in the box. Exactly. Maybe we're shopping, you know, near our hometowns too much and not going to the nice. You need to go to a Bloomies, it sounds like. And the crabgrass story, Manis, sounds like Target stores in San Francisco have some challenges. Well, San Francisco more and more is is becoming problematic for retailers. We had already seen Walgreens close, um, I think, 10 different stores in San Francisco over shoplifting concerns. Target now announced that they're going to close early on a regular basis. Normally, they close at 10 p.m. Now they're going to close at 6 p.m. There are a couple of Target stores that back CMBS loans. One's in the Stonestown Galleria, I believe. The other is Ocean Boulevard or something like that. But um, we're going to write that up next week in our trip wire. But, you know, more and more you see these headlines of retailers being concerned about crime in that city. And that, that's never a good thing. And apparently San Francisco has the fifth worst retail theft in the nation. You know, as somebody that grew up near New York City during the 70s, kind of at the trough of New York's recession and crime wave and, and so forth, I'll be the first to admit that, you know, when, when things happen, when crimes pick up and there's, um, there's problems in a city, it's never as bad as it appears from the outside, right? New York in the 70s had its problems, but, you know, there were places you can go and there were nice restaurants and you can go to Broadway and so forth, but you know, there were pockets of the city that, you know, had become, you know, crime ridden or unkempt to, to use Joe's word or tenants had left and so forth, but it wasn't the entire city. But what happens when you get this narrative is it keeps people away, right? So I'm sure that in San Francisco, there's still parts that are just wonderful, right? Shopping malls and, and destinations there. But what it does to a city is when people from, you know, Kansas and Texas and Oklahoma are looking for vacation destinations and they see these headlines, they say, you know what, let's not go to San Francisco. Let's go somewhere else. Let's not go to New York. Let's go somewhere else. And that's, you know, that's the stigma you get with these headlines. And, and that could be kind of self-fulfilling over time. It's only made worse right now by social media, video, you know, all that type of stuff. Right? Well, there, was so a, there, was, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal this past week that even though they have the highest vaccination, one of the highest vaccination rates in the country, they've got the lowest return to work office workers right now, and that's hurting the small businesses, the restaurant owners, and a lot of the, the people that rely on that traffic for business. And they don't think that's going to improve until the second half of the year. Right. They don't have the, the JP Morgans and the Morgan Stanleys out there forcing their thousands of workers back to the office, right? It's all Twitter and Square and all these other types of companies. Which leads us to talk about office with more employers proceeding with return to work or hybrid plans. We're seeing stories of both good news, bad news, green shoots, crabgrass, and there's a bit of a shuffle. So Manis, why don't you start with a must know? So the must know, we started this three or four weeks ago. It's a little bit tongue in cheek because, you know, most brokers know things, um, you know, the minute they're happening, who's moving where and, and why and how many square feet they need. But uh, we do put this out as a public service message so that people listen to our podcast just in case something happens that they miss because they're on the beach or in the mountains on vacation. Uh, so we try to pick up on stories that are, are big stories with uh, big square footage, big parcels um, up in the air. So our must know this week is that Visa, the credit card 
provider is looking to expand its Atlanta presence. This story comes via the biz journals. Visa is looking in Midtown. They want 120,000 square feet of space. This area of Atlanta, I guess, is known now as Transaction Alley because several uh, credit card companies have taken space there. It's very popular because of its proximity to Georgia Tech, uh, according to the article. The article says that among the places that Visa is considering would be the former headquarters of uh, Norfolk Southern, the railroad operator. Uh, that's at, at 1200 Peach Street. Other uh, potential parcels that they're considering would be, uh, let's see, Tower Square, which was formerly occupied by AT&T, and um, the Campanile building at 155 Peach Street that has over 400,000 square feet available. So if you are a broker in the Atlanta area and you have space of that kind of size, you want to get on it and make sure that you're in contact with Visa as they're looking to uh, expand in that city. So I had a couple of uh, just bullet points to throw out there from the office side. I, I always kind of quote these new mark guys who send out some good kind of uh, digestible research on the office market. And a couple of, it's usually New York centric. So pardon me for being, an, pardon me for my New York bias, but a couple of things here on the mobility side uh, in terms of kind of commuting and, and people moving around Metro North, LIRR and subways were down 39%, 46% and 52% from pre-pandemic levels. They're inching up a month before those numbers were four, seven, five percent more negative. So, you know, we've crossed that Rubicon, I think, of the 50% mark. So more than half of the people who are commuting pre-pandemic are back on the train. Uh, so that's good. Uh, I actually bought my parking pass for the train station recently, which tells you I'm slowly uh, rocking myself back into uh, going back into the office. Castle, which is that security uh, key fob swipe company that we talk about a lot, is registered 21.7% you know, physical occupancy over the last uh, week or two in New York City. That is uh, up a few percentage points from the last time we talked about this. The 10 uh, city average is, meaning the top 10 cities across the U.S., is 32.1%. So that's, uh, you know, it's still not great, but it's it's better than it was before. Sublease space on the market in New York City has decreased about 6% from the, pre, from the pandemic peak, which was in April. And then there's a bunch of other stuff here about, about 10 million square feet in kind of new space requirements, you know, tenants looking for space in New York. So kind of a mixed bag, but uh, more indications of that, you know, slow but steady recovery. Thanks, Joe. I'll run through a couple more headlines. You can call this one another must know, I suppose. Um, the Chicago Tribune was reporting that uh, JP Morgan Chase is looking for 1 million square feet in Chicago. It is unclear if that 1 million square feet is, you know, looking for existing inventory or a new development. I got the sense it was the latter. It's very hard to find 1 million square feet of contiguous space on the market right now. Uh, if it is a new development, it would kind of only add to what is a real glut of supply in Chicago right now. Chase already has its own building 
in Chicago that if it were to engage in a new development for the 1 million square feet, they would sell the Chase Tower, which again would add more square footage to a already quite, you know, uh, a market that has a great deal of availability. So uh, again, if you are a developer there, the must know there is that Chase is looking for space, but uh, hopefully you know that already. Uh, a few other random headlines. Uh, we wrote about this in Tripwire. Um, at 1500 Market Street in Philadelphia, the Radian Group is looking to sublet its nearly 200,000 square feet of space. The property backs a 2020 SASB deal. The firm's lease ends in late 2024. They're looking to move to the mainline suburbs um, for, their, uh, for their offices. Uh, elsewhere, Fox 4 in Dallas was reporting that Uber is forfeiting millions of dollars in tax incentives and is backing away from its plan to grow its presence in Dallas. Uh, they still will have a presence. They were going to have 3,000 employees, uh, but now they have scaled that back to only 500 employees, so a big pullback. That would be a crabgrass, a green shoot in Nashville. The property at 1801 West End Avenue has been sold for 76.5 million. Uh, that was six years after trading for 50 million and about 15 years after being valued at 40 million. Um, this property used to be known as the Palmer House. It houses the publication, The Tennessean. And why does this matter? Why is this a green shoot? You know, you look at newspapers across the, the US and they're kind of a a dying breed, and in this case, somebody was willing to pay a premium price for something, for a you know place that is anchored by a publication, which, as we know, there's been uh, dozens and dozens that have gone out of business in the last ten years. So, uh, another sign of strength uh, for the office market, which we always like to point out. Yes, that was thunder in the background that you could hear. The tropical <laughs> storm coming through. I will go with. Two more stories that we were following this week, uh, both which had CMBS ties. In Salt Lake City, this comes from KPVI News. Uh, Recursion signed a lease for an additional 100,000 square feet of space at the Gateway in downtown Salt Lake City. Why did this catch my attention? This was a painful memory for the CMBS market. Uh, there was once a $101 million CMBS loan from I think 2013 that was backed by this property. It ended up taking a $41 million loss several years ago. This property now seems to be on the rebound with this 100,000 square feet lease to recursion. V-Star, Vestar is the owner of the, the property. And then lastly, a trading alert from this week, we noted that Life Fitness will be consolidating its Illinois offices. The firm currently is split between properties in Rosemont and Franklin Park, Illinois, but they will be consolidating into the Rosemont location. Why does this matter? Well, at 9525 West Bryn Mawr Avenue in Rosemont, the, uh, that property backs a $26.9 million CMBS loan. Life Fitness is the top tenant with 33% of the space. Their lease, according to servicer data and prospectus data, uh, was to end in 2025, but prospectus notes indicate the firm has a lease termination in late 2021. 
and it would appear that they're going to exercise that lease termination, which will leave a big hole in that property. Uh, the office backs a CMBX eight loan. Okay, moving on to shout outs. Dylan P, a rising senior at UT Austin, loves the podcast and really enjoys the banter between all of us on the team. And it really separates y'all. I didn't write y'all. I think that was a direct quote. Being from UT Austin, that's not surprising. And enjoys that it breaks up the monotony of heavy topics. Monotony. So, you know. Apologies that we haven't had as many funny things to say today. Monotony. Today. I think it's the weather. It's, it's making us all a little gloomy today. And Deborah Morgan thanked us for the shout out. She loves the podcast and cannot believe that everyone in CRE and CRE Finance isn't a subscriber and can't think they of are. anything. Yeah, well, <laughs> not sure we're there yet. And Black Eagle Real Estate also tweeted in response to our podcast when we talked about our grading ourselves for predictions held to a higher standard performance reviews. Perhaps the predictions were influ influenced by what we know and not what we don't know. And then of course, Steel City Dave from his lovely vacation spot in Spring Lake, New Jersey, uh, listened to our podcast last he week. He has been a little quiet this week. Now I know why. Now you know why. <laughs> actually working while remote. Well, guys, with more employees getting back to the office in the coming months, there's talk about what changes we're going to make to our office attire. So I have a question. Are you going to go business as usual, business on top, Zoom pants on the bottom, or full loungewear, of course, wearing closed toe shoes, please? This one, this is a, this is a little tough for me. And I have to, I have to say, on a, on a serious note, there is some anxiety about going back to the office right? Like getting on that train, getting that, you know, adding three hours to your day in terms of commute and all that other stuff. Dealing with, uh, you know, whoever's in Midtown at this point, <laughs> when you're walking from the train to the office, like all of these things are, are starting to become a little bit more real in, in my brain. And, uh, you know, what I'm going to wear, that's, that's just adding one more anxiety to my list. You know what I mean? Well, I had a dream. I got to tell everybody. I had a dream that I was on the train home from work and I didn't know what stop I was supposed to go to. <laughs> All right. So that's like my new anxiety dream. It used to be that I got out of the shower and I was in, I wasn't in my house and I couldn't find my work clothes, but now this is a different, this is a different one. Well, we've all had that dream where you show up at school in your pajamas, yes. right? And you wake up and you're sweating and you're in a panic, you know, maybe when you're 11 years old, you could actually see this, in your mind playing out right after 14 months of taking part in zoom calls, you know, maybe with a collared shirt and your pajamas on, you know, the odds of, of getting on that train with your, you know, your striped pajama bottoms, you know, increased enormously over the last year and a half. You know, I hope that doesn't become a reality for you, Darren. I'll tell you this story from early in my career on wall street to keep up with Techland, It just, switch from uh, business, you know, having to wear a suit and tie to work to business casual. And people didn't know what that meant. They didn't define it. And I had a colleague who came in wearing, I think it was a Nirvana t-shirt, jeans, and like work boots with no laces. And the next day, human resources had, okay, here's what business casual actually means. So not quite sure what our policy looks like <laughs> when we go back, but uh, I don't think it I'm going to push it all the way to the Nirvana t-shirt. 
It's interesting, though, because we've all seen each other now for a year and a half in much more relaxed attire. Whereas before, you know, I don't think I'd ever seen Martha in like a non-fancy kind of business outfit or Darren or Manus or anybody else. But now that we've all seen each other in our bedrooms, in our living rooms, in our basements, like, is that like pretense gone now? Or do we just put it right back on? I don't know. We'll see. I might just go full suit and tie just to throw everybody off when I come back. Oh, well, once you've seen Darren in negligee, you can't unsee that. So it's just one of those, <laughs> you know, one of those things that, you know, you talk yeah. to your therapist about and, and, you know, try to get out of your system. Well, that roll of credits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With that, we'll close. And thanks to our producer, Haley Keene. Join us next week as we review what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting. If you have a question or a comment, send us an email to podcast at trep.com. For more information, visit trep.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right. <laughs>